Welcome to the Underground Sessions podcast, courageous conversations at the intersection of faith, culture, and politics. Each episode will feature a compelling conversation around an important issue. As we step into the tension, we remind you that the views expressed by guests may not reflect the views held by Millington Baptist Church. Now, let's start our session. Welcome to the Underground Sessions podcast. I'm your host, Bob Urban. I am very excited today to be joined by my colleague, Dave Henschel, to discuss the topic of spiritual gifts in the church. Now, if you've listened before, you know that the Underground Sessions um, is a place where we have courageous conversations at the intersection of faith, culture, and politics. Well, today, our topic is going to cause us to lean in the direction of faith and theology. Last month, we hosted a spiritual gift summit here at NBC, and hopefully some of our attenders will be listening to this podcast because we didn't have time to delve deeply into the supernatural spiritual gifts in the seminar, and so we're going to talk about that during this podcast. Now, spiritual gifts can be a controversial topic depending on your theology, so it's a, it's a good idea that we have a scholar with us today. So Dave, welcome to your first podcast. Hey Bob, great to be on the show with you today. Awesome. Well, if you are not familiar with NBC, you know Dave and I um, are um, uh, co-pastors here at the at the church. I serve as the lead pastor for uh, preaching, family life, and mission. And uh, Dave, maybe you could talk a little bit about your uh, your background and your description. Sure. Yeah, we we enjoy working at, as pastors together in our pastoral leadership team model, and I uh, serve as the lead pastor of spiritual formation and care. And so. I'm responsible for overseeing things like adult education, small groups, uh, care team, as well as our Stephen ministry. So it's a wonderful place to serve the Lord. Right. And I oversee the family ministries and outreach and our missions programs. And so we feel like the models are really great. Uh, we get to complement each other and we get to do fun things like this, as well as putting together sermons and, and strategic thinking and things along those lines. So let's dive right in today. We're going to talk about spiritual gifts. What are they? How do they benefit the church? Where do we find them in Scripture? So, Dave, maybe you could start off and tell us just what's the definition of spiritual gifts? How would you, what would you say a spiritual gift is? Sure. When we think about spiritual gifts, uh, typically we look in four different passages in the New Testament for uh, what God says about those. Uh, the first one is in Ephesians chapter 4. Uh, there's one in Romans 12, 1 Peter 4, and 1 Corinthians 12 actually has two separate lists there. Uh, spiritual gifts are basically unique endowments from the Holy Spirit generously shared with Christians in community for the building up of the body of Christ in practical ways. Uh, the, the issue here that we're talking about is uh, when we think about spiritual gifts, oftentimes people will disagree on this question. Have certain New Testament gifts ceased or are they all in operation uh, today? And so the gifts that people typically talk about with regards to ceasing, uh, there's usually three or four, prophecy, healing, tongues, uh, possible word of knowledge. The more, as you said, supernatural gifts or sign-oriented gifts or spectacular gifts. And so the question that we people ask are, are, are these gifts still operative? And secondarily, are they normative? And third, some people say, are they signs of spiritual maturity or Christian maturity? And so there's some debate about this topic. Right. Like some people will say that if you don't speak in tongues, you're not actually a Christian. You haven't experienced the second baptism of the spirit, things along along those lines. Exactly. Some people, I also want to mention, some people also will uh, say that in 1 Corinthians 7, the gift of celibacy and singleness also can be considered spiritual gifts. But right. that's not generally, I think that's probably not the majority position, but some people will, will say that as well. Yeah, it's interesting that none of the gifts are identical, 
And so some people don't think that it's really comprehensive, that it's more representative of the way God gifts the church. And so there, there may be some gifts that are not even listed there that uh, the Lord Jesus and the Holy Spirit has given us as blessings. Right. And so Dave mentioned a couple of lists. So let me just mention um, when we talk about, again, the supernatural, miraculous or sign gifts, uh, most people will say uh, these gifts are those that fall in that category. So speaking in tongues and the interpretation of tongues, uh, the gift of prophecy, which uh, we'll talk about a little bit later. There's different definitions of that. Uh, the gift of miracles, healing, uh, something called word of wisdom or word of knowledge, and then also distinguishing between uh, spirits. So uh, in just a few minutes, I think we'll go, we'll go through those a little bit more in depth in terms of what those things, um, uh, what people disagree about when it comes to those specific gifts. Well, the way we view these gifts typically depends on our theology. So we thought maybe we would just share a little bit about our personal experience here with um, either with uh, churches that, uh, you know, believe in the signed gifts, the miraculous gifts, or uh, friends that we've had. Um, so Dave, would you mind going first and just sharing a little bit about your background as it relates to... Um, you know, personal experience with the uh, with the charismatic gifts. Sure, and I think a lot of our listeners will come from different backgrounds too. Uh, some of you who are listening might have come from more Pentecostal or charismatic backgrounds. Um, other others of you m- might have come from a more different cessationist background, meaning you you've been taught that these sign gifts, um, uh, or perhaps maybe even all the gifts, are no longer relevant today. And then maybe there's a group of people out there who don't really have an opinion, and maybe this whole discussion is new to you, and so. You've never taken the time to think about that. So we're glad that you are here, no matter where you come from. I have some experience in some different denominations. Um, I have some background in the Assemblies of God denomination, as well as some family that are still heavily involved there. So I've been exposed to a lot of uh, the charismatic movement. Uh, But then um, the opposite side of the spectrum, I went to Dallas Theological Seminary, which has historically been a cessationist um, school, graduate school, and it's right in there in their doctrinal statement, actually. So I kind of have experience with all different sides of the spectrum. And so I have friends on all sides and hopefully um, have learned to speak graciously about those who, who may disagree on this issue. Right. And so my, my background, I, I never really attended a uh, more of a Pentecostal charismatic church regularly, although I've been to services. My first experience as it related to uh, some of these supernatural gifts were when I was in high school, I worked at a Christian bookstore, and the, um, the, the woman who owned the store went to a uh, very charismatic church, and I still remember a guy coming in one night who seemed a bit off, and she was praying the blood of Jesus over him, <laughs> which, was, which was a new thing to me, and so I had to ask her what exactly you know, that was all about. And then when I got to college, I had several friends, uh, certainly, who came from more Pentecostal backgrounds, so... Um, you know, learned about speaking in tongues, and even though I don't speak in tongues, learned about it, and uh, some of these other supernatural gifts, which we'll talk about. And I do, as as Dave mentioned, I also have some other friends uh, today who um, who certainly have a difference in theology on this on this topic. So, um, you know, in relation with that, there, there's a whole uh, history as it relates to the charismatic movement. So we thought we'd take a few minutes just to kind of go over uh, the modern charismatic movement within the United States, how that came about, and um, you know, what, what, what churches and preachers are maybe more associated with that. So, uh, Dave, I think you were going to share a little bit about that now. Yeah, sure. Uh, before we get into the movement, let me just kind of frame out uh, what category we're in here, uh, because I do think we need to be gracious as we talk about this topic. There are things uh, that we believe that are cardinal doctrines, um, and those are really important that we hold um, the deity of Christ, the Trinity, the Bible is God's word, uh, 
things like that, uh, his substitutionary atonement. Uh, there's other areas that are clear Bible teaching where we need to obey those issues. Mm-hmm. And then there's kind of this third category that I call gray areas or disputable issues. And uh, when we get into that category, I think it's really important that we acknowledge that we're all brothers and sisters in Christ having this conversation. We shouldn't forget that. They're, they're non-essentials, and we need to frame this conversation in a gracious way. Um, they're what I call national border issues and then city border <laughs> issues. Uh, we're all in the same nation good of analogy. Christianity. Uh, we may live in different cities, but let's not forget uh, how much we do have in common before we talk about what is different. Uh, so did you want to go right into the history? Or? Yeah, why don't, we, why don't we dive into the history, and then we'll, we'll come back and talk about the different uh, spectrum about charismatic cessationists. People might not be familiar with those terms, so we'll, sure. we'll define those and go more in depth in a second. Sure. Well, the modern charismatic movement uh, is typically traced in three waves in terms of America. The first wave came about at the beginning of the 1900s with the Azusa Street Revival, A man named Charles Fox Parham in Topeka, Kansas, taught a small Bible school. uh, And he taught that the Bible teaches a baptism of the Spirit that's subsequent to conversion that is evidenced in the speaking of tongues. And that was in 1901. Uh, He laid his hand on a woman named Agnes Osman, who spoke in tongues. And uh, that's when that whole movement sort of began. They formed new denominational structures. That's when you see the beginnings of most of the Pentecostal denominations in this country get birthed out of this first wave, like the Assemblies of God. And uh, basically, they teach uh, three main things. All the gifts in the New Testament are for today. Secondly, baptism of the Holy Spirit is subsequent to salvation. And third, that tongues is a sign of this work of the Holy Spirit. And so there's a lot of people who hold that view. Uh, Nowadays, you'll see a lot of Pentecostal type of preachers who Um, would hold those types of views. We'll talk about those in a minute. That was the first wave. The second wave really came in the 1960s. It was sparked by Dennis Bennett, an Episcopalian. Uh, This movement was different in that those who were experiencing this charismatic move of the Spirit stayed within their churches and within their denominational structures, yet they had this experience of Pentecostalism. And so during the second wave, there were folks that were not involved in Pentecostal denominations, There were people like Southern Baptists, Methodists, even Catholics, who began to have these charismatic experiences in more traditional churches. And then the third wave of the movement was people who didn't embrace all Pentecostal theology. Uh, They would essentially agree with Orthodox evangelical Christianity in almost every way, except for they would say the, the gifts all are still operative today. So they would uh, follow teachings like, like John Wimber, who formed and founded mm-hmm. the Vineyard Fellowship. Uh, Wimber actually criticized a lot of traditional Pentecostal theology. Um, he does not formulate his interpretation of personal spiritual renewal in terms of a second blessing. And speaking in tongues in that way, he would reject that teaching. He would also reject some of the charismatic and holiness groups, which maintain that physical healing is always in the atonement. Uh, and, and Wimber um, sort of broke ranks with the Pentecostal movement in some ways. Uh, So this is kind of the third wave of the charismatic movement. And a lot of people today who are uh, third wave charismatic folks would call themselves continuationists. And we'll talk about those in a minute. So that's kind of the history of the charismatic movement in America lately. Sure. So along with that, why don't we talk a little bit about some of the denominations that are more associated with this? I mean, when we talk about Pentecostalism, there's some denominations that are more connected with it. You mentioned Assemblies of God. 
there's some other really popular churches that would be in this in this movement too. So when you talk about third wave Pentecostalism, churches like Hillsong uh, would be part of that. I think the Bethel movement out of um, uh, Northern California that produces the Jesus culture, uh, uh, worship songs and things like that. Um, what, what other what other denominations are associated with uh, with you know with this with this movement? You know, I'm more familiar with the scholars and teachers that are continuationists. Um, you know, people like Wayne Grudem, Jack Deere, Craig Keener, right, right. Jack Hafer, John Piper, even uh, J.P. Moreland, Sam Storms, C.J. Mahaney. Um, mm-hmm. Those are all also continuations. So- the Sovereign Grace would Sovereign also Grace. be part of that. Yep. 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 Reformed Charismatic. Reformed Charismatics. Right. So these these are scholars who would break ranks with the the Charismatic sort of classic Pentecostalism. Uh, people like Oral Roberts or Kenneth Hagin right. or Kenneth right. Copeland or people like that, but yet or they ben, still Benny Hinn or Benny Hinn. Right. They would they would not want to really necessarily be associated with what's called the Word of Faith movement, which mm-hmm. is um, very distinct from the modern third wave continuationist sort of scholarship. Right, and then on the other end, who are the folks that would be uh, totally against uh, you know the, the charismatic movements? That'd be probably more like people like John MacArthur and a few others. Right. So on the other end of the spectrum, um, the spectrum would kind of start on the left side with hard cessationism. And then kind of moving from there, you would have soft cessationism. Then moving a little bit over would be continuationism. And then kind of the other end of the spectrum would be classic Pentecostal. So the hard hard cessationists would be people like Charles Hodge, Charles Ryrie. You you mentioned John MacArthur, uh, Richard Gaffin, who teaches theology at Mm -hmm. Westminster, Really, the Westminster Confession of Faith and the divines who put that together had cessationist language built in there. Uh, Dallas Theological Seminary has historically been known for the cessationist position. And so basically these folks uh, view the miraculous sign gifts as having ceased with the death of the last apostle and the completion of New Testament. And so that's that hard cessationist sort of position. You'll find that in a lot of Bible churches, a lot of Baptist churches um, today. Mm. So um, how would you differentiate like a soft con- soft cessationist and then like a soft continuationist? And may- maybe you could mention those four categories again just so people uh, people remember them. Sure. So all the way over on the left side, imagine a spectrum that starts with hard cessationism, then move over a little bit to soft cessationism. Then you could say there's a category so- called soft continuationism, although I'm not totally sure how that's distinct from soft cessationism. They, they, <laughs> they sound so similar to me. Then you would go to continuationism, and then all the way on the other side is classic Pentecostalism or charismatic. A soft cessationist would be the view that the miraculous sign gifts could still be given today, but believers need to be careful about outright acceptance of people's claims of their possession. So people like Millard Erickson, Dr. Dan Wallace, Robert Saucy, they would call themselves um, cautious but open. Um you know, I think some people who criticize soft cessationists would call them closed and cynical. Uh, but, <laughs> but they like to take the position that, no, they're open to these things. And they're particularly open to seeing manifestations of signs and wonders in places where the gospel has not gone yet. Right, so right, right. They would, they would see that as a, an opportunity for authentication of the truth of the gospel in those places. Right. I think, I think uh, uh, Mark Driscoll back in the day is the one who coined the term uh, charismatic with a seatbelt. Yeah. <laughs> it should be more of that, probably more of that soft continuationist position. I like that. Which I think is probably where, where both of us more land and in, mm-hmm. in sort of in that middle, that middle position there. 
Um, but it is also important to, to denote the way that I've often thought about it is that these um, these gifts are given in places, like you said, where the gospel hasn't reached yet as as a sign that the gospel is indeed true and God is real. Um, so, of course, we leave that up to the Holy Spirit in terms of where he decides to give gifts. And, that, and that's an important distinction about spiritual gifts is that they're not there's something that is given by the Holy Spirit to us for the edification of the church and the spread of the gospel. Mm-hmm. Um, so now let's, why don't we come, circle back around and talk about each of those specific sign gifts um, in turn and talk about what exactly those are and how we should interpret them, them biblically. So why don't we start with the, the idea of speaking in tongues and interpretation of tongues. Mm-hmm. Uh, one thing I think that Dave and I would agree upon is that uh, not all Christians certainly need to speak in tongues. So we would disagree with the idea that if you don't speak in tongues, you're not a Christian. Um, the way that I've um, understood tongues is that it is a, a, a prayer language that's given to, to certain believers, and it's the language that you're, you communicate with God within your prayer time. Um, it's, it's a gift that, in terms of the public worship time, if there's somebody that can't interpret the gift of tongues, it's not, it's not useful for the edification of the body because nobody else can understand what it is that you're saying. Um, would you add anything, add anything to that definition of, of tongues, Dave? Sure. I mean, I think the question is, what is tongues? Is it an ability to speak in a known language that's unknown to the speaker? And um, is that different from this private prayer language that you're talking about? So there's a debate about that. I would agree with you that it's not evidence of the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit. So I would reject that doctrine as well. Other people say that it does have a prophetic component when it's interpreted, which maybe is a separate issue, and we can talk about that when we right, get to right. prophecy. Um, but do, do, denominations like the Assemblies of God, uh, they specifically say in their Articles of Faith in Article 7 and 8 that you need to seek after the baptism of the Spirit with the accompanying sign of speaking in tongues. Mm-hmm, and so there's mm-hmm. some implications to that doctrine that basically they're implying that certain spiritual giants uh, of church history were immature Christians and lacking in, in some way. So I, right. I think that that's problematic. First Corinthians 12 seems to imply that not all the believers speak in tongues. You know, Paul asks the question in first Corinthians 12, 10, do all speak in tongues implication? No. And so, um, first Corinthians 14, five, again, he says, I wish that you all did, but the, again, the implication there is not all do. And so there's kind of a debate of what are tongues? Are these known languages or are they ecstatic or are they both? And then the other debate is, uh, when does this come and is it a sign of maturity? And so we have to look at some key passages in the book of Acts, which talk about tongues, to really get to the bottom of that question. Okay. Uh, do we want to do that or maybe we should just move on? It probably would take a little bit of time to do that. Yeah, we can move on for now and come back. Yeah, to let's, let's, not, let's not get bogged down on the, on the tongues issue. I think you probably have an idea of what exactly they are and what the issues are there. Um, I can also include in, in the show notes uh, some passages you might want to look for further study. Uh, so the second thing is prophecy, and if you'll remember, uh, Paul will say this in 1 Corinthians um, uh, 12 and 13, that uh, you should desire to seek after prophecy, because prophecy is for the edification of the church. Now, um, some of the interpretive issues when it comes to prophecy is that in the Old Testament, there's a certain kind of prophet that is related to um, the foretelling of the future and speaking specifically for God, which is a little different than when we see prophets in the New Testament where prophecy is seen as being a revelation that leads to edification. And, and the way that I've sort of understood that uh, practically over the years is that somebody who might prophecy over you might might have a, a, a word that comes from the Lord to bring you encouragement or um, 
you know, to speak to a specific issue that's going on in your life. I think that's also the, the position that Wayne Grudem uh, takes within his systematic uh, theology book. Um, but we, it's not something that we equate to Scripture and should always come under the authority of, of Scripture itself. What else would you add to that, Dave? Yeah, I think I would agree with that. Uh, you know, prophets did two things. They they were involved in foretelling, like like you just mentioned, uh, telling the future, but they were also involved in forthtelling, which is a proclamation of the divine truth of God. Um, I would understand prophecy to be the receiving and proclaiming of a direct revelation from God to dispatch to other believers the very words of the Lord. So if that's the case, then I think anybody who claims to have that gift should... Uh, be warned against the kind of presumptuousness that, that is out there. Um, God is very clear about not wanting his word to be trifled with. And so we have to be very careful before we claim such a thing. Um, having a word from the Lord is something that can be abused. And so um, mm -hmm. I think we need to be careful about elevating our speech to that level. If somebody believes they have a word from the Lord, they better be certain and better be ready to live by the consequences of it turning out and being false. So, right. And I think for those that attended our spiritual uh, gifts summit, um, if you were looking at your inventory, uh, th that um, the person who wrote that pretty much took the, the position that this was the gift of proclamation, which he was equating to prophecy, which uh, more had to do with the, the, the gift of preaching. Um, some people would disagree with that. Again, Wade Grudem would, would put that more under the teaching category as opposed to the prophecy category. Um, so, so there's some different interpretations of that. Uh, in terms of that gift ceasing, uh, Grudem makes the argument that if you look at some of the language in 1 Corinthians 13, uh, you know, when the, specifically about the language about when the perfect comes, the imperfect will disappear, uh, sort of indicating why, um, why prophecy is still a gift that is available today as opposed to something that ceased in the past. Yeah, there's a whole debate about what is the perfect there in 1 Corinthians 13, right, right. and the cessationists would try to argue that it's the right, complete right. canon of Scripture. I don't think that that's a very viable argument there. It seems like the perfect being referred to by Paul happens to be the consummation and second coming of Christ. And so I, I don't think that's the strongest argument given by the cessationists for that position. Right, but that, that is certainly if you want to delve more into it, that's, that's one of the debated passages as it relates to um, continuationist versus cessationist. Mm-hmm. All right, um, so why don't we just kind of talk about miracles and healing underneath one category. So uh, there's a question of whether miracles do happen, and then there's also the question of whether people can still be miraculously healed. Um, now, I would probably just say here, I think uh, Craig Keener has written a really good book on, on miracles in which he, he categorizes all different kinds of miracles that have happened all throughout the world. And uh, I, I sort of alluded to earlier, one of the things that I think about with this is that I, I do think God, certainly God can heal anybody that he, he wants to heal. Uh, he's got the power to do that. I do think those miracles tend to manifest themselves more in situations where um, they will uh, bring about an, you know, a, a, an understanding of the gospel and uh, the reality of God. So I think you hear about these things more in the third world, um, sometimes in inner city context. Those are more where I hear those things happening. So. Yeah, as far as the gifts of healing, um, some see this as connected together with the gift of faith in the scriptures, uh, meaning right. that God would make it uh, so clear to someone that it's almost impossible to doubt. There's this supernatural surge of extraordinary confidence. And so um, as far as healings happening today, you know, I, I believe that 100%. Um, the questions are, are, are more, are these individual cases for people who are sick or is it for everyone? 
who is suffering, what sort of expectation should we have there? And where I come down is I do have a robust theology of suffering. So mm-hmm. I've been influenced by people like Johnny Erickson Tata and uh, the folks throughout church history who have uh, experienced the refining work of God through the suffering that we experience in this fallen world. And uh, so I'm careful about making any kind of demands on God. Mm. And I, I allow God to be sovereign in his choice of who he wants to heal and who he doesn't choose in his sovereignty to heal until, of course, he takes them home. Ultimately, we all get healed one day who have faith in Christ, right? But as far as in this life, I think praying with biblical faith uh, is important, but there's two extremes to avoid. We avoid presumption and assuming we know that it's definitely God's Mm -hmm. will to heal in this person. But we also avoid cynicism and sort of resignation that that this is never going to happen. I think both of those two uh, extremes are are not helpful when it comes to praying for healing. But James chapter 5 is clear. If someone right. is sick, they should call the elders who should pray over this person. And uh, we're going to believe like, mm-hmm. like Daniel and his three friends. We believe God can. We're hoping that he will. We're praying that he will. Right. But even if he doesn't, right. we're still going to worship and glorify him as God because he is sovereign. Right. I had a friend who always used to say that we you will be healed. It's either in this life or the next. Right. Um, so healing healing will come. And certainly, God God chooses uh, sometimes to heal and sometimes to not. And um, and I would certainly agree with you that having a robust theology of suffering is something that we see all throughout Scripture, and is something that we should, um, you know, maybe not necessarily seek after, but we should be ready to be refined when it does come. Okay, so the next category is the uh, kind of two two things in one: the, the idea of a word of wisdom and a word of knowledge. Sometimes if, if somebody comes from a more charismatic background, they'll use, use that terminology. Um, I like the way that Wayne Grudem defines these things and kind of sets up the tension. So let me just read this. This is from uh, page um, 1080 in his systematic. Um, so somebody who has more of a, a charismatic uh, theology understanding would, would see these gifts and commonly think that they are the ability to receive a special revelation from the Holy Spirit and on that basis to speak words that give wisdom in a situation or give special knowledge, specific knowledge of a situation in the life of someone present in the congregation. So somebody could stand up and say, well, I have a word for somebody here today, and it comes from God, and I'm going to speak it directly to you. Now, on the flip side, somebody who wouldn't agree with, wouldn't have as much of a charismatic interpretation would would see these gifts as more of a non-miraculous, ordinary, you know, um, a word of wisdom simply means the ability to speak wise words in various situations, and a word of knowledge is the ability to speak with knowledge about a situation. So you might look at somebody and say, well, that person is really wise and and discerning. Um, So that would be more of a non-miraculous take on those things. I think Grudem does an awesome job laying out the basic position of continuationism in his systematic theology. So I, I really wouldn't add much to that. I think he's um, very clear. Uh, he believes in, of course, the perpetuity of the gifts or the mm-hmm. continuing mm-hmm. validity of these gifts. And uh, if you're looking for a good systematic that um, has a, a robust case for the continuationism, I would recommend picking up Grudem. Right, and he also does a good job of just kind of explaining, I think, both positions as well. And and it's a pretty it's a pretty robust chapter. Uh, most systematic theologies do not have something on the spiritual gifts, but his does. So, I think we'd recommend probably starting there if you're looking for a deeper study on this. Mm-hmm. All right, the last category is distinguishing between spirits, and uh, you know this is where John talks about this in First John four, um, testing the spirits, things of that nature. Um, 
but this is kind of gets in the idea of somebody with the ability to see whether some somebody is being influenced by demonic forces or the Holy Spirit. So you might sort of ask questions. Well, are demons real? Can they possess people? Um, that's kind of what gets what what gets at um, you know that that idea. I don't know. I'm not going to ask you where you fall kind of on that on that spectrum of the demonic possession and how we how we handle those things. You know, I've been taught um, that if you're a believer in Jesus Christ by people I respect, that it's not possible to mm -hmm. be demon possessed yeah. or demonized. Me too. Me too. Uh, so that's kind of my position there. However, uh, you know, John Wimber is one of those people who taught that Christians can be demonized. And so uh, there's, I think, good godly people who disagree on that on that position. Um, and I, I'm, I'm not totally sure that either side has a uh, Loctite case on that. Right. I've heard some people make, it, make a distinction between demon possession versus oppression. So in the sense that a demon can't possess a believer because the spirit of God already dwells with inside you, but there's, I guess maybe sometimes they would categorize that as being demonized and that maybe you're feeling more depressed and you need to, you know, pray against the spirit that's coming against you. Yeah, but, and uh, we are commanded uh, right. in the scriptures to resist the devil. And there is in Ephesians chapter six, a real spiritual war that we're, that we're fighting. And so right, I, I right. see that consistent with those passages. Yeah, sure. As far as possession, I would sort of lean toward the position that uh, I've been purchased by Christ. I'm indwelled by the Holy Spirit. And, right. Um, there's a seal. There's Paul a talks seal. About. So that's mm -hmm. my position on that. Yeah, I would agree with that. Okay, well, we've kind of gone over all the all the gifts. Um, I, I did think, Dave, that we could have some parting words for um, for Christians that are listening to this on how to disagree well about this uh, about this issue, or maybe some practical things we should uh, we should mention. Um, maybe before we get there, is there anything else that you'd like to add, kind of to our discussion, or anything else you'd like to talk about? Well, I just think maybe a, uh, one particular other book that people may want to pick up. Zondervan does a great job on these this counterpoint series where they'll bring together four scholars and talk about the four different positions. And so the one that they've put out about the spiritual gifts is called Our Miraculous Gifts for Today with four views. Richard Gaffin at Westminster, of course, takes the cessationist position. Uh, Sam Storms takes the continuationist position. Doug Ose takes the more charismatic position. And then Robert Saucy takes that soft um, soft continuationist, soft cessationist position in here. So if people really do want to learn more about the four positions, this is a great recommended book. Right. And, you know, you mentioned Sam Storms in there. Sam Storms, uh, uh, I think he's got a ministry called Enjoying God, um, but he, he also wrote a book called Convergence. Uh, and the subtitle is Spiritual Journeys of a Charismatic Calvinist. Now, the book focuses a little bit more on the charismatic uh, part than the Calvinist part. So if you don't agree with Calvinist theology, then you know, don't worry about it. But um, but the first half of the book, he really talks about his journey, and he was actually a Dallas Seminary grad. So he came out of Dallas Seminary being a cessationist, and then one day he started to speak in tongues and realized, oh, I can't, I can't take that position anymore. And so the first, again, the first half of the book is a little more autobiographical about things the Lord taught him and how he learned and his journey uh, to being um, a continuationist, essentially. And then the second half of the book talks talks about theology. Um, the theology behind this and how uh, people who disagree on this issue can work together and, and why we need each other. So I read that in seminary, and that was just a really impactful book, and I, I would encourage you to pick it up if you want to know more about this this specific topic. Um, Sam Storms is great. He's got a yeah. great blog out there. And there's probably one more name you should be familiar with in this debate, an, another Dallas seminary grad who ended up leaving the faculty because he changed his position from cessationist to continuationist. 
and that is Jack Deere, who wrote Surprised by the Voice of God. Um, it's a great treatise on, on his position, and he's got a lot of historical argument there. Uh, so I would recommend picking that up, too, if you're interested. Sure. So what are some parting words we can give to folks in our congregation? I, I certainly think that um, uh, spiritual gifts are important, and uh, if you don't know what your spiritual gifts are, I think you should you should learn them and learn how to use them for the for the edification of the body. Um, so we did the Spiritual Gifts Summit. We're hoping that maybe in the future we'll do more more teaching on this because um, uh, we like to see people empowered to uh, to use their gifts to build others up and spread the gospel. I would agree with that. I think God, at the end of our lives, will ask us, what did you do with the gift that I gave you? And so we're stewards of that heavenly gift. I think for all of us, uh, an application we can all take away is to covet church unity. Before Paul even mm. lists the gifts in Ephesians 4, he says in verse 3, be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And so perhaps when we talk about this topic, it's more vital than ever to remember to be gracious and accept those who may disagree on this issue. Uh, for the continuationist, I would say, um, can you help us understand where the breaks are? Um, if you're going to take that position, could you uh, clearly delineate yourself? When, when do you put the seatbelt on? Yeah. Uh, can you... Can you be clear about what's false teaching and uh, how you would distinguish yourself from people in the word of faith movement? Um, you know, Romans chapter 12, verse 9 says, detest that which is evil, but cling to that which is good. And so um, that's my challenge for those of, those of you who are continuationists out there. And maybe for those who are cessationists, also don't don't be too afraid um, to embrace the, the work of the Holy Spirit within your life because maybe he's got more more for you that uh, he wants you to explore in terms of your spiritual spiritual gifting and spiritual life? I would say definitely. Um, you know, that kind of fear doesn't come from God. And so those of us who are cessationists, would, I would say to avoid cynicism, to avoid, um, uh, to model how criticism should be done with humility, not pride, to avoid making a straw man argument. Um, and to, by all means, please avoid mocking those who take a mm -hmm. different position mm -hmm. than you. I've heard some things that I won't repeat here that are really shameful to um, kind of mock those who take a different position. So please avoid mischaracterizing believers who may disagree with you. Be gracious. Give the benefit of the doubt. Mm -hmm. And then for all of us, I would say keep studying. You know, I, Bob and I have experience in some mm -hmm. different circles. And don't just accept what you've always been taught or what you've always thought. Listen carefully to the other side and be willing, be open to question what you've been taught and submit your thinking not to any man's opinion, mm -hmm. but to Scripture. Mm -hmm. And then I think for Bob and I, um, you know, we just have a pastoral heart. So for whatever, mm -hmm. if, if you have a leadership position, then ask how does this position or how does this teaching affect the flock underneath of you? And so be careful about that. Um, theology matters. Theology has implications. And so uh, yes. we need to be aware of mm -hmm. the things we teach and the implications that they have. Absolutely. And one criticism I've heard of people that, you know, don't don't necessarily embrace charismatic theology is just to sort of dismiss it as being an over emotionalism, which um, you know in some cases may be true, but certainly not in all cases. Uh, so we need to be careful about dismissing people that have differences than differences from us. So I think you did a good job of articulating that. Yeah, and then the, of course the opposite error would be right. under, under emotionalism, under and, uh, over intellectualism. Yeah, or you know quenching the spirit and that kind of thing. So I think there's some errors that both sides can be careful about falling. Right not falling into absolutely well dave this has been a lot of fun we're definitely going to have to do this again and pick some other topics to, to go through 
Sounds and, great. And, one thing we've talked about is doing something on eschatology, which is another another theologically debated topic. So I'll uh, be looking out for that in the future. Uh, maybe not next week because Christmas is right around the corner. But um, but this was certainly a, a, a good timing for this because of the Spiritual Gift Summit. And we hope that those of you that attended and heard this discussion um, have a fuller understanding of, of uh, the spectrum on uh, the sign gifts. So, hey, Dave, would you mind praying for us? I know we don't typically do that. Could you pray for us? And then we'll, we'll send people on their way. Absolutely. Heavenly Father, we pause for a moment at the close of this podcast, thanking you for salvation. Thank you, God, for your son, Jesus Christ, who has redeemed us. And we thank you mm. for, mm. after he ascended into heaven, for sending the Holy Spirit so that he might indwell believers and gift us. Help us, God, to use our gifts uh, to glorify mm-hmm. you and to build up others in the body. And we pray for our listeners today, your blessing upon them. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen, amen. Thanks so much, Dave. And thank you for listening. We hope to see you next time on the Underground Sessions podcast. Thank you for listening to the Underground Sessions podcast, courageous conversations at the intersection of faith, culture, and politics. If you enjoyed what you heard today, share our information with your friends and please give us a five-star rating in the iTunes store so others have a better chance of finding us. You can also connect with us at www.millingtonbaptist.org, where our vision as a church is to see the table expanded for the glory of God as more people step into a life-altering relationship with Jesus Christ. We'll see you next time on the Underground Sessions.